Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. You know, sometimes it's tempting to forget uh, when you're going through one of the epistles. It's easy to tend to think of Paul's writings, such as the book of Colossians here, as theological treatises, you know, just uh, written for the sole purpose of, of making up the biblical text and, and learning more maybe theologically. Uh, we do forget sometimes, I think, that these are actual letters. They were written. They're very, very personal. And since, they're, since they are letters, they provide a very important glimpse, I think, into the church and the ministry of the church in its early years. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that's true of the jugular text that we go to. Uh, for we know that God works all things together for His good, right? For our good, according to His purpose, uh, those kind of texts. But also texts where Paul says, hey, send my greetings to so-and-so. And I thank God for this soldier of the faith. And th this is one of the texts that we come to today. There's a reason for these greetings and these personal notes that we find in these letters so often. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to preach through books of the Bible. So that you don't, I mean, nobody picks up uh, the Bible and says, I think I'm going to preach on the text I'm going to preach to you this morning if they're just picking and choosing sermon er, uh, verses, all right? Uh, we go to those jugular texts. We go to those texts with the, the, the rich uh, theological truths that are obvious. But what you'll find here is that this is very, very practical, very, very helpful and these kind of passages, while they can tend to be ignored uh, when you pick texts from week to week, you see that as God sovereignly chose to include these in the Bibles, <clears throat> and since all Scripture is profitable for us, that we want to be faithful to look at it, and God is faithful to use that to work on our hearts. So let's read the text we're going to look at this morning. It's Colossians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. I'm curious. Just raise up your Bible if you got it with you. I don't want to embarrass you if you don't have it. But I'm just saying this is important. I just want to see how many were, were like iPads and stuff, quite honestly. Okay, good. <laughs> I do that too. So it's, I got this one for carrying around right now. But my studies typically are on a computer or iPad or something like that. All right. I digress. Colossians 4, 7. Paul writes this. He says, And as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, uh, and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond, bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also in Nympha and the church that is in her house. Uh, and when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. For you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And I say to 
Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. One thing that becomes obvious to you when you read a passage like that is, number one, there's names that have to be pronounced that we don't always do very well. And the other thing is that Paul did not work alone, right? He was not a lone ranger. He was not just, this is Paul, that's ministry. Ministry was carried out uh, not by one person as a figurehead, not by an, just a pastor or an elder or somebody like that, but ministry is carried out by a body, right? Ministry is to be carried out by all of the saints, The work of ministry, folks, is an enormous task, and it is not intended only for pastors and professionals. Uh, And there's a really destructive movement, I think, in the church today uh, where the expectation is that pastors minister, evangelize, uh, visit, encourage, etc., which, by the way, they ought to be doing, every one of them, and it is their responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of who else? Raise your hand if you think you're part of that. Yeah, yeah, everybody should be raising their hand on that who's in Christ, right? It is the ministry of each one of us to be evangelists of the gospel, right? It's the ministry of each one of us to visit and encourage and come alongside one another. It's the kind of stuff you were just talking about, even with brothers and sisters who are halfway around the world today, right? The pastor is not the only minister. The fact is we are all ministers. And, And these glimpses here into Paul's ministry show this truth. The ministry is the work of many not simply the work of a few. You know, it's interesting, in Paul's letter, if you were to go through and count them up, there, there are uh, around a hundred different people who are named in his letters. A hundred. You know, see, Paul, even with all his giftedness and uh, the things that were going on in his uh, particular apostleship, he couldn't and shouldn't carry the ministry alone. The work of the gospel, folks, is the work of the body of Christ, the church, And it wasn't just true in Paul's time, it's also true today as well. So it's important that we we notice that because we tend to think of the visible work of the ministry, you know, teaching, ministry, things like that is the only work of the ministry and that's just plain wrong. You know, when a group of ladies gets together on a Tuesday morning and prays for the church and its its body and for missionaries and things like that, you know what? Ministry's going on, right? When, When some guy in his office at home Uh, sits down with his Bible open and begins to work through a Sunday school lesson for four and five-year-olds, ministry's going on, right? When when somebody comes in early and sets up all these chairs, I still haven't gotten here early enough to know who that is, quite honestly, and maybe somebody different all the time. There's ministry going on, because how long would you guys last through one of my sermons if you were just standing? Hopefully you'd just be thrilled, but I'm realistic. You see, there's ministry going on. When somebody picks up a phone or writes a note of encouragement to one of the body, that is the work of ministry. When a father and a mother take the time to open up the word of God with their children, folks, that's ministry. And whether it's a sermon preached or a song sung or played or a trash can emptied or an elder meeting held, a visitor greeted, a bulletin board put up, a lesson prepared, it's all important work in the ministry when it's done to the glory of God. Remember Colossians 3.23? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for man. No job in the church and the body is insignificant, even though not all are readily visible. And you don't want to get in the habit of categorizing ministers or ministries 
in the church is great ministries and small ministries because that's not true. There's greatness in all of them. And the smallest of what people would consider the smallest of the small, there's greatness in God is using it. It's like the old poem, you know, for the loss of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For the loss of the horseshoe, the horse was lost. For the loss of the horse, the soldier was lost. For the loss of the soldier, the battle was lost. For the loss of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And there's truth to that because the body is just that. It is toes and fingers and ears and mouth and all this working together to function as a unified uh, being. Nobody remembers Charles Lindbergh's mechanic, right? But Lindbergh would have never done the things he did without him, right? Nobody remembers who Tim, Tim Tebow's uh, offensive linemen were, right? But he wouldn't have got any yards without him. I guarantee you that. All the work of the ministry is significant. We need to evaluate ourselves and see if, if each one of us is actively ministering and seeking to minister within the body of Christ and to the body of Christ. Then we need to consider the quality of our ministry, right? And the motives of our ministry. Do, do we complain about the work of ministry that we do? It's easy, right? You ever been there? I have. Maybe I'm not as holy, but you know, everybody has, has found themselves in that position from time to time. Do we do our ministry with excellence as unto the Lord? Or do we even at times avoid the work of the ministry? We need to be like our Lord Jesus Christ who said in John 8, 29, I always do what pleases my Father, right? And that's a heart of ministry, a heart of service. And all these questions as we, as we evaluate our own personal ministries are crucial because the work of the ministry is, is God's work being done in and through us as a collective group. And if we're negligent in our ministry as individuals, it will harm the collective ministry of a body such as this church. And what we see here in Colossians 4, 7 through 18 is that there's a great supporting cast to Paul's ministry. We see various types of minister, ministers represented in this section, okay? And I've got them on your outline there if you'll follow along with me. In verses 7 and 8, we see the service, the servant. This is a fellow by the name of Tychicus. Look at verses 7 and 8. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and then he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is probably not a guy you've heard a sermon on before. You may have. But I'll tell you what. Lord, give us churches full of guys like Tychicus, all right? This guy is amazing and he's awesome the way he's being used by God. He is a dedicated servant of God. He is a faithful man of God. The first time you meet Tychicus in the Bible is in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And he was with Paul on his third missionary journey. He was in Ephesus at the end of that journey with Paul. And Paul, if you'll remember what was going on there, Paul had planned on going next to Macedonia where he intended to collect an offering to add to the offerings he'd gotten in Galatia and Achaia. And he was coming back around bringing this offering to the saints who were in Jerusalem who were under a great deal of persecution and hardship. And because of the persecution that was going on in, in Jerusalem, Paul went around to collect these things. And one of the guys who's right there with him uh, fighting the battle is this guy by the name of Tychicus. And his willingness to be there, his willingness to travel, his willingness to come alongside Paul's ministry shows his servant heart. Because, folks, this was not a pleasure cruise. I mean, where these guys went 
and the terrain they, they encountered and the resistance they encountered was anything. I mean, this is not Fromers, you know, let's go look at the guide and let's go see St. Paul's Cathedral, all right? Which wouldn't have been there when St. Paul was there, obviously, but you get what I'm saying, okay? This is the idea here of, of men who are traveling across very, very difficult situations and, and hostile territories so that they can bring truth, so that they can c- gather encouragement and go back and encourage the church in Jerusalem. Is that cool or what? I mean, this is not a travel study program or something. I mean, this guy went on this long, dangerous journey. He was away from his home, friends, family for a long time. And he did that because he wanted to minister to Paul, to the people that he encountered along the way, and those folks back in Jerusalem. Now, when Paul's writing Colossians here, it's been over two years since he was arrested in Jerusalem, all right? And during that time, he'd gone through a lot of stuff. And we find Tychicus here at this point. We see Tychicus at the end of that third uh, missionary journey. And I think it's reasonable to, to assume that he's been along the path with him the whole way through all kinds of stuff. Those arrests, uh, he'd survived the murder plot of the Jewish leaders. He had been maybe at the trials with, before Felix and, and Festus and Agrippa. Uh, he had endured a, a her- herring voyage to Rome, including a shipwreck. I mean, this is a guy who was going along. And what we, we find him on the Jerusalem side, we find him on the Roman side when, he's, when Colossians are being written. And it's likely he was there all through all that. And if so, he went through some really amazing situations with Paul. You remember in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote down what it was like. Do you remember that passage? And he said, hey, I've been through all kinds of things. He's not complaining. He's just telling a story, right? He's saying, I've been in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen and dangers from the Gentiles and dangers in the city and dangers in the country, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. He's been in dangers, folks, right? And that's the path. But even so, uh, Paul and Tychicus as well were faithful. And we find Tychicus here serving alongside the Apostle Paul. And we'll find him later, too, serving alongside Paul at the very end of Paul's ministry. If you were to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, you remember in that passage that Paul wanted to see Timothy one more time? And he was sending for him? Well, Tychicus was the guy who went to fill uh, and take care of Timothy's ministry so that Timothy could come and be with Paul. It's awesome, isn't it? It's a beautiful, beautiful story. What a long time faithful servant. So here we find Tychicus during, fall, during uh, Paul's first imprisonment, the ever faithful servant. I think Paul's trust in him as well as God's trust in him is visible. As he's, as Tychicus, what he's going to do now is he's going to be entrusted with a task of taking one-ninth of the New Testament on a journey back to the people it's going to. He's taking these books of the Bible, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon to their destinations. Isn't that cool? This is Tychicus. And Paul, look at in our verses here, he bears witness of his faithfulness. He calls him a beloved brother. He identifies him as a fellow Christian, a brother in Christ. He calls him a faithful servant. That's a man who can be relied upon to carry out the work of Christ. And he calls him a fellow bond servant, which means he's Paul's co-worker, co-servant, who is a slave to Christ's will. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. By the way, the chief virtue, I think, of a Christian working in ministry is faithfulness. 
The word says that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's what God values really more than anything else. And he doesn't ask us to be popular. He doesn't ask us to be brilliant. He doesn't ask us to be widely accepted. But he does ask us to be faithful in what he calls us to do, whatever assignment he gives us. What would a church be like that was full of tichikuses? Faithful, enduring, serving men and women of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Beautiful, beautiful picture. Commit yourself. I mean, a lot of you guys are young. I'm looking around here, and I I come around you guys, and I feel old. You make me feel old because you're young. Your skin's perfect. You have your hair, all that kind of stuff. It's not gray. Well, some are gray. But you know what? What if now some of you guys who are 20, 25, 30 years old, you said, you know what? I'm going to be modeling my ministry after Tychicus. I want to be somebody who is faithful as Cornerstone. If it moves from Garden Grove to Fullerton to whatever, and this pastor comes and goes and all this kind of stuff's going on, I'm going to be Tychicus. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be serving. I'm going to be ministering. When it's popular, I'm going to minister. When it's unpopular, I'm going to minister. When I see a need, I want to come alongside. How cool would that be, right? 20, 25, 30 years old for the next 40, 50, 60 years, whatever God may grant you. Commit today to be a Tychicus. Okay, that's the first guy we see. Number two, we see the slave. That's a guy by the name of Onesimus, okay? Verse nine. And with him, with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Now, here's a guy with a pretty rough past, all right? A sinful past like all, but he has an interesting story because uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave. You know the little letter in your Bible called Philemon? It has to do with this guy, all right? Uh, he apparently had taken some of his master's property, money, whatever, Philemon, he took that and ran away, the slave, Onesimus. By the way, Philemon, guess what? A leader in the Colossian church. Isn't that interesting? To whom the letter's being written. But in, by the providence of God, Onesimus, he runs away and he runs off to Rome and he comes in contact with Paul. And Paul himself probably led Onesimus to, the, to Christ and Paul now is sending him back to the master with the group carrying these letters, one of the letters being Philemon, which is an appeal to Philemon to accept Onesimus back with forgiveness and welcome him back as a brother in Christ. <clears throat> and Paul says here in verse 9, he says that Onesimus <clears throat> is our faithful and beloved brother. He was once a slave and now his brother. Isn't that beautiful? He's now, look what it says, one of you. And you think about this little letter of Colossians where it says that there is neither slave nor free in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Because you think to Onesimus' ears, it was like, oh man, this is awesome. How wonderful that I have a relationship now with, with Philemon, my master, which is so different than it was before. Once again, what we're seeing here, beautifully illustrated, folks, is the transforming work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're no different, right? I mean, we were runaway slaves, right? And we were Jonah's, Onesimus's, right? Who were going our own way, wanting to do our own thing. 
and we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saves us, he transforms us, he renews us, he regenerates us, and he presses us on to a new task. Is that awesome or what? And here, that's the story of Onesimus. When when Christ comes into a man's life, there's change. Some of them are drastic, right, and really obvious. I I knew of a guy, he he since died, but he he was a wife beater, a speed freak, He had, back when it wasn't so cool, tattoos from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And Jesus got a hold of this guy's life. And now he became this guy who would share his faith with everybody that he worked with, everybody that he ran into. The likes of which I'd never seen. Somebody that fired up to share the, the gospel. That's a drastic change for those folks who knew him and then saw that change, right? Let me tell you about another drastic change. A 12-year-old girl hears the gospel from her mommy. She's not a speed freak, not not into prostitution or anything else like that, but God saves her. Now, to our watching eyes, does it look as drastic? No. Is it as drastic? You bet it is, right? Because what was that little 12-year-old sweet little mama's girl, right? That girl was a sinner, right? An enemy of God fighting against God, just like you and I, right? Apart from Christ. It's a drastic change. Some people say, well, I've heard people actually say this. And maybe you said it. I wish I had a big testimony like that. You know, like the guy, you know. Thank God that he, he didn't give you a great testimony like that. He gave you a great testimony, but it's not like that. Because those folks struggle with a lot of different things, you know. And there's a lot of dominoes that fall because of that activity that, are, that never come back, right? Even though they're forgiven. They're still hurt relationships and people they've, the wrongs they can't totally get right. What a great thing that God protected you until such time that he turned you from that little miserable sinner into the inheritance, the adopted child of God, right? You and me both, right? This is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. They're both drastic changes when viewed through the eyes of a holy God when that rebellious sinner is transformed into the adopted child of Christ. Or in the words of Colossians 1.13, right? He delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. <clears throat> the slave. And the slaves transformed into what? Into a useful minister. The church is full of Onesimuses. Transformed lives from sinners to saints. As such, realizing what our great God has done on our behalf, how should that affect our ministry? How willing should we be being saved out of a slavery, slavery to unrighteousness to, to be slaves for Christ and follow him no matter what the cost, no matter what he asks us to do, right? How much joy can we do that with because of how he has redeemed us? That's the slave. Number three, we see the captive of Christ. Verse 10, you see a guy by the name of Aristarchus, okay? Look at verse 10. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, okay? Now, there's some other folks, Barnabas, his cousin Mark, and Jesus, who's called Justice. These, these are three Jewish believers, okay? And we know that because verse 11 describes them as of the circumcision, which means they're Jewish, right? And, and like many of the Jews of the, the dispersion, they took on Greek names, and so that's why he has that, in case you're wondering. But we first meet this guy, Aristarchus, during Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus. And if you remember the story there, remember there was a silversmith by the name of Demetrius? Remember this? He made uh, idols, 
that were being used to worship Artemis at the temple. And Paul comes in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember what happened? I mean, people get saved. When people get saved, what happens to the idol business, do you think? Idol business starts to take a, a rather uh, uh, bare kind of turn, doesn't it? it? It gets bad. And so Demetrius and his fellow compadres and that are going, hey, you're bad for business. This isn't a good thing. What in the world's going on? Let's get these guys, right? We got to drive whatever this is out of, the, out of town because it's hurt my pocketbook. Paul's evangelism and the ministry of these men had hurt the business for these guys. So they got together a rioting crowd of people and they began to chase these guys out of town, so to speak. And, and this crowd recognizes a guy who is our man here, Aristarchus. And they recognize Aristarchus as, as one of Paul's companions. And so they grab him and they take him into the theater and it's kind of like a lynch mob situation, right? I mean, by the way, is he in the middle of God's will there? Is he, is he in the middle of God's will or did all of a sudden... Aristarchus become a guy who was outside God's will, so all these bad things started happening to him. Are you tracking with me on this? He's right dead in the middle of God's will, and he's about to be presumably lynched, right? What does that do to your, if I'm in the middle of God's will, everything's going to be perfect ministry scenario that you might have in your head. When people are leaving your church or leaving your, your uh, Bible study group or something like that because you're preaching the word, because you're telling them the truth or things like that, is that, is that okay? Or people get mad at you because of that? Is, is that acceptable in your ministry model? That, that you still do what's right even if it has a cost? That's this guy. He's a captive, man. He knows that it's not about comfort. His, his sea was captivity, not comfort. And it wasn't miserable captivity, okay? I'm sure it wasn't really exciting when a group of writing people grab you and decide to do bad things to you. I'm sure he wasn't just going, oh, isn't this great? He might have been going, rejoice in the Lord always, like Paul did when he was in chains, in his best day. But I'm sure he had some times where he went, uh-oh. Lord, are you there? And you know, he eventually got freed, okay? And Aristarchus, by the way, you say, well, there it is. See, when he got freed, it's all perfect now, right? Well, go tell that to James who got beheaded and Peter who got crucified and everybody else who's gone through those kind of things that didn't quite come out that way. Yeah, ultimately, folks, it works out. But there will be hard times and you're not guaranteed that you won't be killed for your faith, right? You're not guaranteed that your numbers are always gonna increase and different things like that. Don't, don't take that Americanized version of ministry into your head and, and start to get discouraged when things aren't going exactly perfect. Just go back and say, am I being faithful to what my God called me to do? When he saved me and made me his captive, am I being faithful in that? And if the answer to that honestly is yes, then you press forward. Be faithful. Continue to be faithful. I mean, he was released and, and at that point, you know what he could have done? He could have just said, enough. I'm going to go find a safer ministry and who needs this, Right? I think I'm going to go work in the home office of the, the missionary <laughs> you know, field instead of out here with Paul. By the way, the home office, it wasn't going so well for the Jews. But we find him not doing that. We find him faithful. We find him continuing on. And here in Colossians 4.10, Paul says, this is my fellow prisoner. And it may be that Aristarchus got put in jail with Paul. We don't know that, right? The root word that calls him my fellow prisoner there is literally the idea of one who has been caught with a spear. He was a prisoner of war. <laughs> now, this war may have been, he was in prison, technically, just like Paul was, 
or it could be a sp- more of a spiritual understanding of that, which is he was uh, a captive, uh, a prisoner of Christ, a captive of Christ. He may not have been physically in jail with Paul. We don't really know that for sure, but it may have been just talking about how he's a, a, a fellow prisoner for the gospel, captive to Christ. But what we do find out is we find out that Aristarchus doesn't bail in Ephesus because he was a captive already, a captive of Christ. And like Paul, he could count all his earthly things as lost for the sake of the kingdom, right? And he was going to press forward. So in Ephesus, he was there. (coughs) By the time we get here, when the Colossians being written, guess what? He's right there, even though it might mean prison. So as you're thinking about your own ministry, do you continue? Do you continue when it's tough? Or do you run for the safety of compromise? Well, you know, people don't like it if we talk about divorce the way the Bible talks about divorce. Or people don't like it if we talk about church discipline and the Bible talks about church discipline. So in our generation, we need to just paint those things into a little corner. Let's not talk about it. Yeah, we believe them, but let's not really do them. I'm not saying there in a time you leave a ministry. I'm not saying that... uh, there also may be times where you're in a ministry that's not really your ministry, and some of that may have to do with that, right? It's just not your giftedness. You know, somebody says, I, I think I'd like to be a teacher. They teach and nobody ever listens, right? Then it could be that it's not the message, but it's just that that's not their giftedness, and they're wanting to take on something that they're not really supposed to. But here's the bottom line for a guy like this. Realize who you are. You are, as a Christian, a captive the captive of Christ, a beautiful, wonderful, how deep the Father's love, right? How wondrous the love, Christ saved you, he came here. This is not a captivity that's, that's brutal and whipping and all this kind of stuff. This is a captivity that's a captivity of joy. A captivity that says, I wanna follow Christ. I'm a prisoner to his plan. I cannot go outside of that because it is as if I am bound with chains to his plan for my life that I want to follow that. I don't wanna escape that. I'm not going first to what my selfish concerns are or my comforts. Be a captive of Christ, folks. Continue in God's work when it's hard and when it's wonderful. Be an Aristarchus, okay? Number four. We see the restored one in verse 10. This is Mark, okay? And he's the second Jewish man on our list. It says, uh, verse 10, right in the middle, you see also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If, you come, if he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, they've received some sort of instructions about Mark. It may well have to do with his history. It may be that the church of Colossae, if Mark comes by there, doesn't think very highly of Mark. Because Mark has some struggles in his past. I don't know if you remember this about John Mark. He's a familiar name probably to you. But during Paul's very first missionary journey, do you remember what he did? He was with Paul. He was with Paul. He was going from point A, point B, point C. And then when he got to point D, you know what? He said, enough, I'm out of here. Paul was not happy about it, okay? Paul was like, nope, <laughs> we're done. You're going home. This, and some people, you can speculate on what the issues were. They were about to go in a very, very dangerous area. And that may have played into it. He, he was young. He might have been homesick. You know, who knows? But whatever the deal was, Paul took pretty much a hard line on and says, no more ministry here with me because I got things that God's calling me to do. And so he partnered up with Silas and the rest of it's with Paul and Silas, right? No longer Paul and Barnabas, who, were, who it was before and John Mark at that point. 
Barnabas, however, took a great bit of concern about this, right? It's Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. I don't think it's just because it's cousin. I think because Barnabas is an encouraging guy, right? And so what his deal is, he, he separates from Paul, and people have written volumes on this, like, oh, Paul was wrong. Oh, Barnabas is wrong. He's too hard. He's too soft. Let me just tell you what my opinion is on that. It's opinion, okay? But it's based upon, I think, an exegetical understanding of Scripture. Neither one of them is wrong. You say, how can they? It's two different things. Well, I think God used them both. I don't find God uh, saying to Paul uh, and condemning him for that in his word when he describes it. I don't see him condemning Barnabas for what he did when he describes it. But I think what God did was God used two different things. Paul was on a mission, right? And it had to be taken care of. And he didn't have the time within that confines of what God had called him to do to take John Mark at, at a slower level. However, he was with a guy named Barnabas who could. And Barnabas separated and did that and discipled him. And helped him along. And God, I think, used both of those. I think he used Paul's firmness to get Mark's attention. I think he used Barnabas' encouragement and sympathetic guidance to, to minister to, to Mark. And God later would use Peter, who was no stranger to failure himself, right? To minister to Mark. And that's a guy that Mark really was discipled by, was Peter later. So here's this point of failure for John Mark where, I don't know, maybe he was scared of the robbers in the, the mountains of Perga or he was ashamed of the gospel at that point. I don't know. But I do know this, that God wasn't finished with him yet. And that's a beautiful part of the story here, right? And John Mark is a living example of Proverbs 4.18 where it says the path of the righteous is, is like the dawn. It will shine brighter and brighter into the full day. You know, this guy who was in despair and shame probably at the point that he leaves that first missionary journey. Later, he's a guy used by God to write the second gospel that bears his name, Mark. Right? He's a guy who, who was useless, who became useful. 2 Timothy 4.11, which by the way is Paul's last letter. He's nearing death, execution. And what does he say? He says, I want you, he's writing to Timothy, he says, bring Mark to me, for he's useful to me. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. I mean, I don't have room for him on my journey right now, because I'm, I'm, my, my face is set this direction. You know, he's got, you go take care of him right now. Firmness, right? And at the end of his life, he's like, could you just bring him here? He's so useful to he, he's, been, he's been seasoned. Barnabas poured himself into him. Peter poured himself into him. And at the end, that's the guy that Paul's asking for. It's so beautiful. You know what? You and I are almost certain to have failures in whatever ministry we do. You're almost certain. But God is so wonderful in here because God is the one who, who can take you even from failure and use you to have an impact. You know, just because you, you, you didn't do a very good job that time you took over the third grade class and things fell apart and everybody's mad at you or whatever else happened, you know, let me just tell you this. God's not finished with you yet, okay? He's got ministry for you to carry on. He's a God of second chances, right? He's one who's working. And, and maybe you're here and you failed in some sort of ministry. You haven't been faithful, but God forgives and God will use you in some capacity. He loves to use those. Who, if you're still breathing, right? He's still got something for you to do. It's not just like we're going to sit around here, you know? Well, I failed. I've never got anything else to do. He's got something for you to do. Be ministering. Be ministering. Like John Mark.
Number five, the comforter. Jesus, who is called justice. See that in verse 11. Also, Jesus, the third Jewish man, Jesus, who is called justice. These are the, and it speaks of them all, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. See, they're Jewish, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. This verse is the only mention of Jesus called justice, okay? Only mention we have of him in the New Testament. Uh, but what we see from that at the end of verse 11 is that he was an encourager. I tell you what, that's a ministry that will not get you a lot of pats on the back. But I can tell you that there's probably no more important ministry that you can be a part of to, to encourage others. We need lots of these in, in churches, right? Uh, God uses faithful people to encourage the flock because there are times when the riding crowds after you because there are times when you wonder if you're having an impact and different things like that. It's so wonderful when somebody uh, encourages your heart, isn't it? And how hard is this ministry really? I mean, here's the way it works with most of us. We look around and we think, you know, I sure do like old so-and-so and they've had an impact on my life and they've ministered to me and my children or whatever their ministry is, right? And that's where it stops, in our heads, right? How much more so? And, and we're not doing this for kudos, right? The guy who's setting up the chairs isn't going, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm never going to do this again unless somebody thanks me. Well, some might, but you, you get what I'm getting at here? Well, how, much more, how much more wonderful is it when God lays those kind of thoughts on your heart to go around and just say, you know what? I really appreciate what you're doing. It's meant something to me. I can tell you as a pastor that there have been many times that that was the wind that really helped me to step on. You know what I mean? It's a lot easier in any ministry to remember the one person who criticized and the 40 people who encouraged. You see what I'm saying? So don't stop being encouragers. Come alongside. The word also has the idea of comfort. Come alongside. You see a need. You see somebody who's struggling. You see somebody, maybe they're not struggling or anything, but you just want to encourage them. That's, that's mimicking God himself, isn't it? What's another word for the Holy Spirit? It's the same word. We need that. We don't need to bark and, and throw up in the aisles and do all the other weird stuff people do in the name of the Holy Spirit. We need to be encouragers to each other, right? And how hard is it? The poorest person can do it and the richest person can do it. The only difference is if we do it or not is whether or not we take it to heart and say, you know what? Instead of just thinking this in my head, I think I'm going to actually go to that person and encourage them. You know? a huge ministry in the church and too often what happens is many become behind the scenes discourager instead of behind the scenes encouragers be an encourager be a, a Jesus called justice number six the pastor verses 12 and 13 this is Epaphras we've met him already in Colossians Epaphras who is one of your number a bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings always laboring earnest for, earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God for I bear him witness that he has deep concern for you and for all those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. You remember that Epaphras had a problem in the church. He journeyed a thousand plus miles to Rome out of concern for the flock. Paul calls him a bond slave of Christ, which is something he calls himself often. What he's saying is he's a like-hearted individual. 
It's interesting that in the letter to Philemon, Epaphras is referred to there too, and he's called a fellow prisoner. That may very well indicate, along with the fact that he didn't return with those carrying the letter, that he got arrested in Rome as well. His concern for his flock got him stuck in Rome in jail. But was he discouraged? Was, was he disgruntled? Was he down? Look at verse 12. He sends his greetings. It says, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. See, and here's the pastor's heart, right? He's laboring earnestly. That's agonizomai. He's agonizing like an athlete uh, straining towards the finish line. He's wrestling in prayer. And what is he praying? Look at verse 12. That they would stand perfect. That means not perfect, perfect, but mature. That's another way you can translate this very same word. Fully developed. That they would be improved upon and fully assured and you might be thinking, well, is that assurance of salvation? Well, you can take that if you want to. But really what it's talking about here is satisfied fully. That they would be matured and content and satisfied in their, in their life of Christ. In all the will of God. That they would be satisfied fully in what God has for them to do. They wouldn't be going, I think I want to do something different. And this lays at the heart of the Colossians' problem. Where Paul, you remember, very beginning of the letter, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And this is it, man. When we are focused and setting our mind on the things above, now the things are on earth, and we are satisfied in what he has for us, you know what? The plan and the purpose and all that stuff, the ministries all get so much more bright and, and meaningful, and, and, and we don't need, as we're not worried as much when there's, there's things that are fighting against us and all that kind of Verse 13, it says, For I bear witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. His deep concern, he travels, right? I'm not sure. Maybe they thought he didn't have a concern. Maybe they thought, you know, maybe it was the deal where there's all this other stuff coming in. They're going, well, maybe that's the way to go. And what's wrong with our stuffy old pastor, right? And he says, I bear witness to you. This guy has your heart and mind. He wants to minister to you. He wants to see your life impacted. Epaphras had a pastor's heart, a praying heart. Let me ask you this in your ministry, okay, because this is part of everybody's ministry. Do you pray for one another? I mean, do you pray? Look around this room. Beautiful faces and friends and people that you've fought alongside with and fought against maybe even at times, right? Do you pray for one another? Pray, you know, just like pray they'd have a good day, but pray that they would that they would know Christ deeper and more full and that they would be fully satisfied in God's will. That they would be maturing. That's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? Ah, who wouldn't want 120 people praying for you that you would grow and that you'd be more Christ-like, you'd be more mature and that you'd have a, a fully satisfied life in the will of God? Who wouldn't want that? You have that opportunity today. Nothing has to, nothing has to happen other than everybody in this room start going, yeah, I think I'm gonna pray for everybody else. You got probably some kind of list of people or church directory or something. Grab that bad boy out and start going through it. How awesome would that be? Not costing you anything, right? Other than a concern for one another. That's what Epaphras was like. That's a pastor's heart. That's a praying heart. Number seven, the doctor, Luke. We know him well. He's the guy who wrote Luke. He's the guy who wrote Acts. He's with Paul in the second, third journeys plus the voyage to Rome. This is just, what you may not have thought about with Luke is this is a guy just using his vocational skills for the glory of God. I love that. Because his vocation was, he was a what? Doctor, right? Paul had some sort of problems going on, right? And needed a doctor. And here was a guy who said, instead of making all the money I can make as a doctor, I'm going to go with this guy and minister to him. How cool is that? 
And there's all kinds of, it's not just doctors, right? There's guys who know how to build stuff, who can work on things. I've known guys who have just been beautiful uh, pictures of Christ because what they did was they said, you know, I've got certain skills that I do make money on, and that's my job, but I'm going to help people out with them in the body. A widow whose uh, plumbing isn't working. You know, they go, guy's a plumber, he knows what he's doing, he goes over there and he helps out. How much owe you? Well, you don't owe me anything. I just want to do that because I want to encourage your heart. I want to use it so you can be out and about. Fix the plumbing at the church so the toilet's not overflowing or whatever, you know. There's all kinds of things that we can be doing, right? And we all have skills. Do we use our skills for the work of the ministry? Well, that's an important thing to think about. It's easier with some skills than others probably to figure out as well. Number eight. This one's not as pleasant. This is the defector. We see him in verse 14, the second half of the verse, it says, and also Demas. This, this is very sad, okay? But it's unfortunately very common too. And he's an individual that's found in ministries everywhere. He's mentioned here. He's mentioned in Philemon 24 as a fellow worker. Um, when the time you get to the, the 2 Timothy 4.10, there's a very different picture of him. Paul is all alone. He's, he asked Timothy to make every effort to come to him. Uh, his imminent execution is coming by the Roman authorities. And he says, he says, Timothy, please come. Because Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This man was with Paul. Lots of places. He was with him when he penned the words, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He, he moves his vision from the vertical to the horizontal and leaves the ministry. You know, as a pastor, as a, an elder, even people in small groups and things like that, one of the most discouraging things you can face are your demises. Um, don't be terribly discouraged by that let it break your heart without being discouraged um, the best ministers had them Jesus had a Judas right uh, Paul these are, this is, we're, we're at the top of the game here right Paul had a Demas and it's a little bit comforting to note that even the two greatest leaders in the world history when it comes to the Christ, Christianity had those who failed them But as we're thinking about our own ministries, if maybe you're running into that in your ministry, and I hope that's encouragement to you, but past that, we need to really consider our own ministries to not be Demas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not to become like that, not to be like him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Let him who, who thinks he stands take heed lest he should fall. I never will forget a, a guy I knew, his name was John, who... Uh, I mean, this guy was, when I was in high school, was a guy who, who every evidence he loved the Lord, man. He, would, he spent time in the Word. He was active. He was involved. He was ministering. But at some point, the lure of the world got him, and, it, and he's nowhere to be found today, even with Facebook. 
sad. Don't be, don't be a Demas, guys. You don't think, well, you know, I've been faithful all this time. I'm going to be faithful forever. You take guard over your heart and say, I want to stay close to Christ. I want to make sure that my vision is continuing to be set on the things above. Because when, my, when I start looking down, like Peter looking at those waves, it's so easy for me to get distracted. And I don't want to be the guy that leaves the ministry, that leaves the faith. I'm not talking about assurance, salvation. I'm not talking about all that. I'm talking about people who said, you know what? Enough. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And I can tell you where my theology is on that. My theology is they did not lose their salvation. I hope you understand that. Because he who began a good work, right, is faithful to see it to completion. Philippians 1.6. But he may very well not have had it. And was just putting on a show the whole way. If he doesn't have it, it's not because he didn't lose it. Because he loses it. Number nine, the rest. Verses 15 to 18. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it read in the church of Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. See, these letters came and they were circular letters. They were being taken from church to church and read. Uh, the Laodicean letter may very well be Ephesians. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, that's probably Philemon's son, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it, unlike Demas. And here we have a man who was not doing his God-given ministry, and Paul says, just do it. Be faithful. This is our charge as well, guys, because there's not one person sitting here who has been saved by the blood of Christ who does not have a ministry to carry out. Do you understand that? Not one. Not one. We are to, to carry out our God-given ministers. You are ministers. This church doesn't meet just to worship and learn, period. We meet to worship and learn in order that we may prepare each other and minister to each other and minister out when we leave the huddle. It's a very important truth and one which the devil resists strongly because it's so powerful. When individual Christians begin to recognize that God can and will work through them, they begin to sense new excitement and new challenge, and the Christian life is no longer boring or routine. It becomes de uh, demanding, and it becomes exciting. Too often the Christian church is like uh, you know, the USC-Stanford game, right? There's 22 guys fighting around on the field and 80,000 80, people watching. Ministry can be painful. Any of these individuals today would tell you that. But it's the most rewarding work there is. And, and it is this ministry, Paul's concern for a lost and dying world, that put him in chains in a Roman prison, chained to a Praetorian guard, and far away. It's ministry that, that, that grabbed the heart of a man by the name of Epaphras in a church that was struggling with false teachers who traveled that thousand miles so that ministry can continue, that God's gospel cannot be diluted, that doctrine will be firm and held true, and that people would have true joy, excitement, and, and, and vivid kinds of ministry. And Paul, hearing the message from this man Epaphras about the ministry being attacked... By heresy. Heresies of legalism and mysticism and ritualism and intellectualism and asceticism and all this stuff. Paul's heart, even though he didn't know him, was touched, right? And filled with concern as well. So he lifts him up in his prayers and he takes his pen under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he writes this letter that we've been studying 
so that they would be filled full with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they may walk in a manner worthy of their Lord, so that they would bear fruit, so that they would please him in all respects, so that they would be strengthened with all power, so that every man could be uh, presented complete and mature. And now Paul lifts his pen to write his last words to them, verse 18, and as he does it, here's what he writes. And I picture the, the chains rattling you know, and becoming taught as he writes, I, Paul, he takes the, you know, most of the time he had a, what's called a manuensis that was writing for him. Uh, not here. I, Paul, he takes the pen in his own hand. Chains, you know, goes over to write. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That's how he closes the book. What an odd ending. Right? He says, I, I've dictated this thing. The Spirit has moved me to say certain things. This is being written down for you, but I got you to, I got to have you know this. This is in my, my hand. This is my pen I'm writing it down with. I want you to know this. I'm sending you a greeting because I do care about you, but I also want you to remember my chains. And what he's not doing there is going, well, please, you know, take care of me and feel sorry for me and all that. That's not it. He's saying, hey, what you're going through isn't easy. I understand that. But remember my chains because God's still working in it. When you're encountering a hard time, remember my chains because God is there and he is sovereign over all these matters and we don't have anything to fear, right? Because we have God for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Remember my chains. And so he says, grace be with you all. Remember my chains, grace be with you all. God's abounding grace shower down and flood over your lives so that you may have the grace to minister well, to refute false doctrine, and to reach Asia Minor with the kingdom of God's message. Simply as he began the letter, he closes it. Grace be with you. And there's a lot to take from that letter. I mean, may, may we, like Paul and the readers of this letter, understand better the fullness of our Savior, his sufficiency and our completeness in it. May, may we set our mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not the things that are on earth. May, may our lives reflect our Savior to our, our spouses and our families and our friends and the watching world and those we work with. And may the truth of this epistle burn in our lives so that we may be filled to the overflowing with who Christ is and the joy of the relationship that we've been granted and graced with and minister for his glory until we breathe our last breath and go into his presence. How awesome will that day be? It won't be long. None of us have just an immense amount of time left, whether it be by his return or by just the sheer number of years. In a blink of an eye, ask anybody here that's 80 years old or so, how fast did it go? You're going to ask me, I'm 50. How fast did it go? It's going really fast. And it'll be a little while longer. And if I live long enough, I'll be sitting in some wheelchair and I'll be maybe in a home or who knows what, you know, whatever's going on. But you know what? The years will go fast. And so why not just grab a hold of these bad boys and live for the kingdom of God, right? I mean, it's not, can you, can you just say, you know, I have a, it, there's an urgency to that. It's so short, the amount of time we got left. How can I use this day, right? 
How can I use this week that God has set before me, this month? I don't know what my day is. He's got my days numbered. But you know what? He's called me to minister the gospel. He saved me. And when he saved me, he did not immediately uh, bring me into glorification in his presence, did he? He left me here. Why? So that I may grow and, and mature and bring the message to other people and minister to others who are doing the same. We're not here just to enjoy the football game or have a fun time at the mall, if that's possible. Get a tan. We're here because God left us here with the most important truths that mankind's mind can even begin to grasp. We're here to grow in those and to bring them to a world that so desperately needs to hear the truth. To be saved, there's only one way, Jesus Christ, right? To be sanctified, there's only one way, the same way you began, through Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful, because when that short period's up and we stand before him, may we be blessed to hear by his grace those, those faithful words, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. We'll rest then. We'll have comfort then. But for now, we live for Christ, and we burn for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your truths, which uh, penetrate into our hearts, and, and we find inconsistencies left and right. Lord, may we be found faithful to uh, repent of those things that are inconsistent with who we are in Christ by your grace. May we have joy to follow you and to serve you and to share you. Lord, may you continue to use these truths that we've learned as we study this book in each of our lives in such a way that we will be transformed and that your, the power of your transforming gospel can go forth and transform other lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.